Uh, if you would now, just uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're in Matthew uh, chapter 6 today. What we're doing is we're kind of doing a, a follow-up series from our Easter sermon. And uh, if you want more background, you can go listen to that, that sermon online later. Um, this is the second part of four that we're going to be tackling. Uh, looking for life and, and seeing what, what is in the power of the resurrection and, and what life do we really have in Christ. And so last week we, we went through the first of the four kind of stages of this. We saw this, the stages were there when we saw the resurrection happen, right? The women went to the tomb and we saw some things occur during that story. And then following that, there was the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then following that, we saw the disciples in the room, in the home where Jesus appeared to them. And there were some, some themes that happened in all of those uh, all of those times. And, and there were four themes that we, we looked at. The first one was there was some confusion and distress or dismay. Uh, when the women went to the tomb, they, they were searching, what the angel said, for the living among the dead, right? They, they didn't really comprehend and understand and remember that Christ said he would be risen from, from dead. Instead, they went to prepare a body for, for burial. They were, they were looking for a dead body of Jesus Christ, when in fact they should have been looking for life. So they were looking for life among the dead. On the road to Emmaus, we saw that as well, and they were challenged uh, by Jesus himself as he walked on the road with them, and, and he asked, why are you so slow and foolish to believe all that the prophets have spoken? And, 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 and we get in that way as well. And so that, there was a rebuke that was had. There was confusion that started, like we're looking for things in the wrong place, and we're, we don't understand the scriptures. And then the rebuke occurred. And, and you and I all need a rebuke in our life, and today we're going to be ta- tackling that that rebuke in the form of this sermon title, Questions of Kingdoms. Because the rebukes come in the form of questions from God or God's messengers to us. And we certainly can see those questions in Scripture. So we're going to ask ourselves a series of five questions as we look through our text today, questioning uh, the kingdoms that we serve or the ones that we follow. So there was confusion, uh, there was rebuke, and then next week we'll look at instruction, what, what Jesus instructed his disciples about and then how that led to a, a fully changed life. We saw that uh, the confusion was a search for the living among the dead, and, and really it was that theme and that thought that we have our own little kingdom, we have our own little idea of what this kingdom is going to be made of, and that's, that's what we set as a priority, and that's what we focus our hearts on. But when Jesus rebuked them, he said, basically, why? Why are you setting up a kingdom that's false, that's, that's a facsimile, that's not real? This is really about my kingdom, he said, and, and my kingdom brings life. So we're in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 19 through 34, we'll pray and we'll, we'll get into that text. Father, thank you so much for your great, great love for us. As we come today, as we gather in your midst, God, with, with your people, with our families, maybe by ourselves, but God, we, we know that we are gathering in spirit with others as well. God, I pray you would open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to the truth in your word, that you would encourage us by it, God, that we would stand uh, not in, in, in a place that's comfortable or not seeking comfort, but God, seeking to seek your kingdom first and to put you first and above everything, that we would, we would know and, and experience true life as we do. So God, convict us of sin and, and God, move us to a place of obedience and repentance. And God, we ask that you would continue to conform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 19. If you want to follow along, we'll read 19 through 34, which is the end of the chapter. Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more important than food and the body more important than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about your clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, O you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to tackle this passage together. We're going to break this apart. And, and really, I think this is Jesus rebuking us, rebuking you and I. And, and as, he, as he starts this, what we understand is, is he's gone through a, a portion here about fasting and about he went through the Lord's Prayer. How do we pray? And, and what he was distinguishing is that there are two kingdoms. There's a kingdom set up of men who seek their own desires and own pleasures and, and, and want to look good before other people and, and acquire things. They want to look good and acquire things. And that, that provides a status, that provides a security for them, but it's not what Jesus wants us to be like. He says that's one kingdom. He says don't be like the hypocrites of that kingdom, but be like this kingdom, the kingdom of your Father in heaven. So it's so important for us as we contrast this to see what Jesus is setting up. He just finished telling his disciples about the Lord's Prayer. He contrasted these kingdoms, and, and he said in this prayer that when we pray, we should what? We seek thy kingdom come and thy will be done. That we set his priorities above our priorities. And that's what's on the heart of the disciples as Jesus enters the next part of this text. But I want us to go back for a moment and look at just three different passages, and I'm just going to use a few words out of there. Uh, these are the, the, the words that where, we, where we think we find security in our own kingdom, but this is what happens when we, when we try to set up our own kingdom. This is the stress that, that comes to our heart. And we find these uh, three, three passages in the story from Easter. They're in Luke 24, and uh, all along the story, verses 4 through 6, 25 through 26, and 38 through 39. But there are some words here that describe the real security we find in our own kingdom. The first part, the women had gone to the tomb and they were perplexed about this. They were perplexed that Jesus' body wasn't there. So when we set up security in our own kingdom, we become perplexed. Later, they were terrified when they, the angels came. So they're per perplexed and terrified. On the road to Emmaus, there were a couple words that described those disciples. Jesus called them foolish and slow to believe. 
And then finally, in the, in the room with the disciples, he asked, why are you troubled? Why are doubts arising in your heart? Now, now let's put those together. When we seek to establish our own kingdom and the security that we find in seeking our own kingdom, what it eventually leads to is us being perplexed and terrified, foolish and slow to believe, troubled, and that doubts arise in our hearts. Now, I know that sometimes we all get a little scared or nervous or or doubt, and those things can come in, and Jesus is speaking to us in that. But certainly, if this is how we live our life, if we try to set up and establish our own kingdom and securely by ourselves, we will always end here, perplexed and terrified, foolish, slow to believe, troubled with doubts in our heart. So he says, that's not what I want you to do. And in fact, in the last part of that last passage, he says, those doubts arise in your heart, but he says, look at my hands and my feet. And what he's telling his disciples is, listen, you are looking for the living among the dead. You're looking for life, like we said last week, in all the wrong places. Jesus says, look at me. Look at me for the security you seek. Look at me for the confidence you seek. Look at me for the life that you need. So today we're going to pose some questions of kingdoms. And we're going to see what or who we are actually looking at for life. And it should be challenging to us all because we don't always look to Jesus properly. So questions of the kingdoms. Here's the first question, number one, and we'll go back to our text. Number one is this, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Let's look at the Matthew text, chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. It says, don't. Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store. So don't, but do this, right? Don't store up treasures on earth, but do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, there's a couple things I want to deal with here, and I think that Jesus is dealing with. One of them is this. This is going to expose the priorities of the heart. This is going to expose really where our heart is. Someone once said, if you want to really see your priorities, just look at your your checkbook balance sheet or your bank statement if you use a debit card all the time. If you print that out or go online and look at that and see where your money goes, and then if you look at your calendar and see where your time goes, you'll find exactly where your heart's focus is. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that, listen, that should challenge all of us. That should always challenge all of us. What are our priorities? What are we investing in? What are we concerned about? He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. So what what are treasures in heaven? What, What does it look like to store up treasures in heaven? Well, a passage out of 1 Timothy is what I want to read next. Chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul tells Timothy, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant, so I'm going, to, I'm going to highlight these things as we look at what, what is storing up treasure in heaven look like. First thing is, not to be arrogant, or to not set their hope on uncertainty of wealth, but to set it on God. So we see those things going on, who richly provides us with all things we need to enjoy. It says, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they might take hold of what is truly life. So let's just look at those things again. What, what are the treasures we see being stored up in heaven? How do we store up treasures in heaven? It says to not be arrogant. 
It says to set our hope not on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, to set our hope on God. It tells us to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. And that willingness there, that generosity comes from the heart. Then it says when we do that, what we're doing is taking hold of what is truly life. And that is setting our hearts and our priorities and affections on the King and on His kingdom, on Jesus Christ, not on building our own kingdom. It's, it's not bad to have wealth. It's not bad to have things. But what are the priorities of our heart? What are we using those things for? Are we being generous? Are we being rich in good works, doing what is good? Are we willing to share? Are we not being arrogant? Are we setting our hope on God? Because that's what brings true life. Hope in the security that only God provides and showing and sharing that hope with others is what Jesus is talking about. Listen, our heart is inevitably drawn to what we value the most. The point is that heavenly treasure alone should be the focus and priority of a heart whose affection is set toward the Father and toward His kingdom. So ask yourself that question, where is my treasure? Where is my treasure? The second question, number two, is this. What do you have your eye on? What do you have your eye on? Back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. It says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? This is somewhat a, a somewhat difficult verse, and it's challenging our perspective. It's asking us if we have the proper view of possessions, and, and does that a view align with kingdom values? Does our view of what we possess or what we seek align with kingdom values? An evil eye will be full of greed, and it will be full of a desire for security in earthly things and earthly possessions, only to see them rot away and decay. And we saw that in the first part of this passage. If we're putting our hope in treasures of earth, storing up treasures in, on earth, those things will rust and decay and bugs will tear them to shreds. However, a healthy eye will not look with envy upon others' wealth, but will clearly see kingdom value and store up treasure in heaven. What is your eye looking at? An unhealthy eye will bring darkness and ruin while a righteous and healthy eye will bring light and contentment. And, and the question there he asked, it was an exclamation. He says, how deep is that darkness? If the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? He's saying, listen, if your eyes are on something that's not of real value, of lasting value, that darkness is going to spread and that darkness is going to go deep and it comes from somewhere deep. He challenges us in our perspective. What are we valuing with our eyes? What, are, what do we have our eyes on? Proverbs 28, 22 says this, A greedy one is in a hurry for wealth. He doesn't know that poverty will come to him. How deep is that darkness? Well, that darkness leads to ruin, to poverty, to shambles, to no security at all, to being shaken and left in despair. It goes back to those descriptive words we used at the beginning. Being terrified and having doubt and fear build up. So do you have a bad view of what and who can provide you with security? Or do you have a right view? 
You see, if we have a bad view, we're looking for life in all the wrong places. We're acquiring wealth or prestige or ego to find security and value, and that will always disappoint. This is really a question of of where are we placing our hope? Where are we placing our value? And too often, you and I value and esteem our own kingdom and our own priorities more than the priorities of heaven. If our eyes aren't on Jesus, then our pursuits will be in vain. I want to read a passage out of Psalm 127. This is a wonderful passage because it doesn't say we shouldn't work hard. It doesn't say we shouldn't keep watch. It doesn't say we shouldn't try and and work for food and for things. But it says if we do it without our eyes on God, we do it in vain. Here's what it says, Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. A really amazing passage. It's not saying don't work hard. It's not saying don't, don't go to bed early or, and, and get up early and work hard. It's not saying don't stay alert and watch. What it's saying is if we do that in our own little kingdom, with our own little values, with our own little priorities, with our eyes on the wrong prize, we do it in vain. But instead, if we shift our heart and the affections of our heart and, and, and what we see and want from, in our eyes, we, if we seek the Lord in that, we say, God, I'm not going to build in vain. I'm going to build and work hard with you, with my eyes on you. I'm going to watch and stay alert with you. I'm going to get up early and, and stay up late working hard to have enough food because I want to work as though I'm working under the Lord, and that is not in vain. So what do you have your eye on? Your own prize or is Jesus your prize? Do you labor in vain? Do you work in vain? Do you build in vain? Do you seek things in vain? Or do you put Jesus first? Don't fix your eyes on what brings darkness and ruin, but fix your eyes on the real treasure, and that is Jesus. The third question of kingdoms is this. Who is the king? Who is the king? Look at verse 24 of Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Listen, there's a tension that occurs when we we try to serve two masters. If we have two bosses, and our affection has to go two different ways, and it splits, and and we'll find ourselves on this teeter-totter, this balance beam, and eventually our affections will go one direction, and we can't serve both masters. So it really is telling of our heart of what master we are serving. Uh, There's a a TV show called The Office, and and there was a a time in the show where a boss was promoted to a co-manager, or sorry, a worker was promoted to a a co-manager. There were two managers doing the same thing in this office. And it was a sarcastic comment from one of the characters. He said this. He said, if I can find it, sorry. I don't know what to do with it. There it is. He says this, in this tension, in talking about this tension, right? He says, look, it doesn't take a genius to know that every organization thrives when it has two leaders. Go ahead, name a country that doesn't have two presidents. 
a boat that set sails without two captains. And where would, the, would Catholicism be without the popes? This is a sarcastic comment, right? That we understand the, the depth of this comment. We don't want two captains on a boat. We don't want two presidents in a country. There should be one leader. Because if there's not one leader and there's multiple leaders, our heart will be drawn and pulled from side to side. We must not have two masters. We must not be divided in our heart. And there's a tension there as we serve two masters. And, and this passage, Jesus is saying, you can't serve two masters, right? You can't serve both God and money. You can't have your eye on both your kingdom and God's kingdom. You're on the fence, and what Jesus is saying is, get off the fence. Stop making this tension so extreme and just get off the fence. And, and really what it is, he's asking us to search our heart. Who is our king? Who is the priority of our heart? Solomon understood this complexity of the heart as well. And in Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9, he said this. He says, keep falsehood and deceitful words from me. He says, give me neither poverty or wealth. Feed me the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of God. You see, God is eager to provide, and we'll see that in a moment as we go through our text. But God is eager to provide for us as we seek Him and set Him as King. He's going to take care of us. He's going to take care of our heart. He's going to take care of the tension in our heart if we would just yield our authority, our kingship, our kingdom to Him and His. And Jesus said this about those who follow Him in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. He said, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds, finds his life will lose it. And if anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Listen, if you want to find life, lose yours. Set yours aside. Destroy your little kingdom and exchange it for the life found in his kingdom. We cannot serve two masters. Who is your king? Number four, the fourth question we can ask. Do you have the right fear and faith? Do you have the right fear and faith? Now, this is a little more in depth. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 6, we're looking at verses 25 through 30 together. So Jesus gets done telling them all about where our heart should be and what master we should serve and what perspective we should have and where our affections should be. And he goes on and says, Therefore I tell you, this is what it should look like now, church. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. I want to stop there for a minute. I want us to understand this. See, our pursuit of things that will make us feel valuable or secure is not far from how God created us, but He knows that it's only found in Him. The problem, problem is that when we pursue things that aren't real, of real value and aren't lasting value and aren't of lasting security for us, we will continually worry about how we'll find that lasting security and lasting value. Worry will creep in, and worry says, I'm going to pursue something hoping that I have control over it. I can control the circumstances of my life, I'll just add something or change something or get a new self-help book and it'll be all better. 
Jesus says you will just continue to be worried. He says, therefore, don't worry about your life. What you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. This is a, from a lesser to greater argument. Listen, he says, consider the birds, right? Then he says, aren't you worth more than they what he's saying to you and I is he's saying, I-, I care so much about my creation. I care about the birds I have, I have created. But aren't you the one I've created in my image? Aren't you the one that I value? Aren't you the one that I died for to redeem and to free from this worry and despair and insecurity? Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe the wildflowers of the field. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, again, won't He do so much more for you? Won't He do so much more for you? And then he adds, O you of little faith. Here's the the point of this. Worry equals a small faith, a little faith. It doesn't equal great faith. Worry equals small faith. You're trusting in in what you feel and what you can control, and and that faith will always disappoint. We think, well, I I can earn enough, I can get enough, I can be secure enough, but those things will always disappoint without Jesus. I want you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 describes another scene with the disciples, and he talks about this, this lack of faith and this, how this fear and worry works together with little faith. So we're in Mark chapter 4, Matthew, Mark, and we're starting in verse 35. We'll go through 41. So on that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. He was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased and there was a great calm. They said, or he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Such an amazing passage of scripture. And, and I, I want us to look at this just briefly. He they go out in the, in the boat, and Jesus is resting, and, and then the waves come up, right? And you think about the fear that's, that's in the disciples' heart. The, the water is coming over the sides of the boat and starting to swamp the boat, and I'm sure they're trying to bail the water out and trying to row back to shore or turn into the wind. Whatever they're trying to do, they're trying to not perish. They're trying to control their own destiny. But because they can't, fear begins to swell up in them. So they wake Jesus up, and they know he's, he's special in some way, unique in some way. 
But their fear says, we can control this, and maybe with Jesus we can get a handle on this. Give Jesus a baler. Give Jesus a, 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 an oar, a paddle. Let's, let's start rowing. Maybe all of us can take care of this together. Maybe he'll be a he-man in some way, and he'll save us and rescue us, and he'll save the day. So he says, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Why are you sleeping? Get, help us get a handle on this. And that's what fear is saying. Fear says we can get a handle on this. We can control this. And I'm only afraid because right now it's out of control. So Jesus gets up, and what does he do? He grabs a bailer. No, that's not what he does at all. What does he do? He gets up. And he rebuked the wind and the sea, saying, Silence, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, their, their worry is what led to a, a faith that disappointed it was a, a little faith. It was a worry that said, I can, if I can control it and I can control our destiny and I can turn the boat into the wind, if I can bail the water out, we'll be okay. I can be secure again. But Jesus had greater plans and bigger plans. And Jesus is greater than anything that we could ever fear. He rebuked the wind and he said, Are you still, you still have no faith? And in verse 41, this is amazing what, what happens. And they were terrified. Now they were afraid earlier. They were worrying and afraid of, what, of the storm, but that fear paled in comparison. Right, The fear over the things we think we can control paled in comparison to the fear they had knowing the one who controls the storm. And see, here's the deal. That, that fear led the disciples into a deep awe and a faith that they had never had and could never express in and of themselves. They could never do what Jesus can do. And if you and I would yield our heart, if we would align our fear in a proper way towards God and say, He's the God over the storm. He's the God over my days. He's the God over life and death. He's the one who directs the soul. If my fear would be in Him, then my faith would increase because He is the only one that can actually come through for us. Jesus is the Lord over everything that might bring fear to us. So our faith should be firmly planted in Him. We should be terrified. Not just have a fear because, well, we should be in control of something. We should be absolutely terrified because He's the one that can conquer all of our fears. He's the one who can actually bring life and security. And that fear should lead us to a deep reverence, a deep awe, longing and looking to the treasure that is in Christ alone. Finally, the next question, number five. What do your priorities reveal? What do your priorities reveal? Verse 31, back in chapter 6 of Matthew. Don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? Why? Why not worry about those things? Well, because we know that God will provide. But look at the next verse. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your Father, your Heavenly Father, knows that you need them. Again, He makes this contrast. 
He says, this is, this is how the kingdom of people act. People say, this is my kingdom. I'm going to set up for myself and be my own God. I can establish this. I can earn it. I can do it on my own. I want prestige. I want power. And I can control that. That's what the Gentiles seek after, their own kingdom. And actually, it's the hypocrites, because he spoke about how all the Pharisees and the hypocrites prayed out loud and were, look, look at me, look how great I am and grand I am. They had nothing compared to seeking Christ or seeking his kingdom. Don't worry about what we'll eat or what we drink or what we wear, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, so don't be like the hypocrites. What do our priorities reveal? Are are, our priorities to look like the hypocrites or... Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. It's like the passage we read in Psalms earlier. We can build and build and work and work and try to sleep or stay up late, but it doesn't matter. We do it in vain if we haven't sought God first. We haven't put him in the rightful place in our kingdom. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen to that. So what are first things first? It's to seek first the kingdom of God, not our own kingdom. So seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now listen, when we seek His righteousness, we are laying aside our own righteousness. We're going to Him saying, nothing I can do, nothing I can control can, can accomplish a righteousness that is satisfactory before God. Nothing. So I lay down those priorities. I lay down that pursuit. I lay down and let my kingdom crumble to the ground so I could pursue the King in His kingdom, so I can pursue Him in faith, and that He gives me a righteousness that I never earned, but one that He accomplished on the cross he accomplished and, and, and paid for us on the cross and then rose from the dead to have victory and to give us life. That is the most important thing, that we would exchange our righteousness, that's filthy rags, we would exchange it for his righteousness. I want to read this passage out of 1 Corinthians. I read this, I think, a couple weeks ago. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's verses 3 and 4, then we'll jump to 12 through 14. Paul says, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. This is, okay, this is most important. If we're to seek first the kingdom of God, what is most important? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Listen, that is where we find our treasure. That is where we find our satisfaction. That is where we find our contentment. That is where we find our security. And it's nowhere else. It's only in Christ Jesus. It is what is most important. Now going down to verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then then, uh, not even Christ has been raised. Here's the deal. This is again going back to where are we searching for life? Are we searching for the living among the dead? Are we we going to Christ for life? Are we going to Christ, the one who died according to the Scriptures, was buried and was raised to life according to the Scriptures? Because real life is only found in the risen Christ. I hope you're saying amen. That's the only place that real life is found. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain 
and so is your faith. But Christ is raised from the dead. Christ accomplished a righteousness for us that we could not accomplish on our own. Christ conquered death and brought life to us who would believe in faith. He's urging you to turn away from your own kingdom. He's urging us to to set aside our own priorities, to set aside where we find our security, to set aside the fear that says, I can control this, I can get a handle on this, to set it aside and to fear the one who has control over it all, even our own soul and our destiny, that we would put our life and our faith and, and thus our hope in the living Son of God, Jesus Christ. So my encouragement to you is this, as we ask these questions of the kingdom, we'd be asking ourselves, what does our kingdom look like? That at the end of the day, you and I would treasure and trust Jesus most. That our faith would be full of life and that our proclamation of Christ would not be in vain. That's the goal. That we would embrace Him and embrace life. And in that, we'd find hope and security in a kingdom that will always, always endure. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for your word, that it is living and active, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, I pray that you would help us to ask these questions today, that we would analyze our own heart, whether we are uh, in need of a huge rebuke because our fear is in the wrong place, God, or whether it's just to encourage us that we are prioritizing Christ above other things. God, all of us have something that we can change or shift, so God, help us to do that. Help help us find in our own selves ways that, that my little kingdom can come crashing down. And Lord, that I would continue to seek your kingdom and your righteousness first. We're so thankful for the life that we have in the risen Christ and in him alone. And it's in his name alone that we pray. Amen. Listen, we're going to go to a, uh, a song.